Praise the Lord. Getting emotional already. God is good. Well, kids, you're dismissed as you've already pretty much made your way out. The rest of you, uh, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Psalms. We will be in Psalm 19 this morning. I will try to preach at the rate of speed that a normal human being would speak at rather than uh, as fast as I was going before. Normally, uh, as you probably figured out, uh, as, we, as I preach, I don't put the passage that I'm preaching through on the screen. You might wonder why. Uh, it's very intentional. It's because I want you to have it in front of you. I think it's uh, good and valuable to have it in front of you. I prefer a good old-fashioned Bible, but some of you do it on your phone and or an iPad or whatever, and that's okay, you know. Um, but I think it's good to have it in front of you. So normally, I don't put it on the screen, but this morning, I am going to put it on the screen Uh, Because I've done something that I don't normally do, uh, which is I've actually mixed and matched a couple different translations of our psalm, uh, uh, of Psalm 19. I usually preach out of the ESV, the English Standard Version, uh, which is the uh, translation that I read out of. It's a great translation, but there are other great translations as well. And particularly with this psalm, I thought some of the wording was a little bit confusing in the ESV. And so I've also included some uh, from the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, which is a newer translation, which I'm loving more and more the more I read it. Um, So anyways, so what you're going to see on the screen will not be any one translation. Um, So all that to say, uh, if if you have it in front of you, and then you can look at the screen for the translation that I'll be reading from this morning. But before any of that, let me pray for us, and then we will begin. Heavenly Father, uh, God, uh, He is worthy He is worthy of all blessing and honor and glory. That's why we're gathered here as a church family this morning is because we want to bring him the glory that he deserves. We want to bring you, God, the glory that you deserve. This psalm uh, speaks of your glory. Glory that uh, we cannot really put into words And so it's a humbling task to try to preach on your glory. And so, Lord, all I can ask is along with the psalmist, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. And by your spirit, may you illuminate this psalm to us, God, this morning we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know about you. But I vividly remember the first time I ever got pulled over for speeding. In fact, raise, raise your hand if you've never gotten pulled over for speeding in your life. There's, wow, okay, a lot of you, uh, maybe some people are lying, but, you know, a lot of you have never been pulled over for speeding. That's very impressive. I wish I could say the first time I got pulled over was the only time I got pulled over, but that's not the case um, either. But I remember the first time I was in high school, I think 16 or 17 years old, and uh, we lived in a woods, kind of on this curvy road to get out of the woods, a uh, 25-mile-an-hour speed limit, and let's just say it was very easy to exceed that 25-mile-an-hour speed limit, and I was doing that, and so I got, saw the flashing lights, and I thought, oh no, here we go, mom and dad are going to be pretty upset with me about this, and uh, so I uh, pulled over like you're supposed to, and the officer asked me this question, which stumped me, and that's probably why he asked me the question, I'll have to ask Dakota about this afterwards, why they asked this question. He asked the question, do you know what the speed limit is? 
And I thought my 16-year-old self was like, oh, no, <laughs> what do I say? <laughs> if I say no, then it's, I'm not paying attention. If I say yes, then I'm admitting that I was speeding, right? So, like, what do I do? You know, I'm processing through this, this through my hormonal 16-year-old brain. And uh, my answer was some uh, jumbled, uh, maybe I did, maybe, I, you know, I don't know what I said. Just a jumbled nothing. But it didn't matter, right? And that's probably why they asked the question. Because the speed limit's posted, right? It's right there. There are signs all over. I can even see on that road uh, like where the speed limit sign is. I know exactly where it is. It's posted. And so there's no excuse. If I did or didn't know what the speed limit was, there was no excuse. And unfortunately, it made I had to pay, meant I had to pay a pretty hefty fine. Well, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 20 is one of the more sobering passages in all of Scripture. It says this. It should be on your screen. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are, like me speeding, without excuse. Without excuse. What can be known about God is plain to all people because God has shown it to them. God is a God who communicates. He communicates who he is, what he's all about. And because of that, Paul says that all men are without excuse, without excuse. The question for us this morning is, how does God communicate? How does God reveal who he is to all people? In Psalm 19, we find our answer. Psalm 19 is a very interesting psalm. If you, as you read the psalm, and we're going to read it, as you read it, it almost feels like three separate psalms. The first six verses are uh, about kind of one thing, and then all of a sudden, verse 7, it just kind of slams to a halt and goes in a completely different direction, and then uh, later on, it does the same thing. And it reminds me a little bit of uh, like a symphony. And I've been, uh, I, I don't listen to a lot of classical music, but I've been kind of on a classical music kick recently. And the other, the other day, I was, Pastor David walked into my office and I had classical music playing on my computer. And he's like, what in the world are you listening to? I don't know, you listen to classical music. And anyways, are there any classical music fans in here? There's maybe like, okay, so for four of you, this illustration will really work. But in a, in a symphony, there's very different, distinct movements, right? You have the first movement, the second movement, the third, but there's different movements where the music is doing completely different things. It almost sounds like three different songs, if you, if you will, but they have the same theme. The same thing is what is going on in Psalm 19. And so for the four of you who appreciate this classical music analogy, we're going to look at the symphony that is Psalm 19, and we're going to look at its three distinct movements that all communicate one message, which is that God communicates who he is with us. And so we're going to start in this first movement, if you will, which shows us that God communicates to us in his world, in his world. Look at verse 1 with me. It says this. The heavens declare the glory of God, 
and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day after day, they pour out speech. Night after night, they communicate knowledge. Now, verse 3, this is interesting. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Verse 4, their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In the heavens, he has pitched a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. God has spoken to us loud and clear in the world that he created. It says, day after day, they pour out speech. Night after night, they communicate knowledge. The message here is that God's creation is constantly and consistently crying out, glory to God, without using any words. Now, isn't it interesting? If you first read it, it sounds like David's contradicting himself. Verse 2, day after day, they pour out speech. Verse 3, there is no speech. Verse 3, there are, nor are there words. End of verse 4, their words to the end of the world. End of verse 3, their voice is not heard. Verse 4, their voice goes out to the end of the earth. What's he doing here? He's saying they're speaking, there's no speech. They have words, they don't have words. They have a voice, they don't have a voice. What's he saying? Well, it's possible to communicate without speaking, isn't it? Any of you, uh, many of you have received the look, if you're married or from your parents, right? You, you've been communicated to loud and clear, <laughs> without any words being spoken, right? Now, God communicates in the same way without words to us through his creation and the pouring out of speech. One commentator I read says this. He said, every day gushes out speech like a fire hydrant, declaring the glory of God. Think about it. When you wake up in the morning, your heart's still beating, right? And you pour yourself a bowl of cereal with Milk that from, came from cows that God's made, and God made, and you put some blueberries on it from the earth that God made, and you walk outside, and you see the sky, and the grass, and the trees, and the birds, and squirrels, and on your way home from work, you see the sun setting, the vibrant colors, right, just filling the sky. There's nothing like a country sunset, in my opinion. The moon and the stars come out, and all these things cry out. Glory to God. Glory to God. And yet I've just kind of described some very boring and mundane things, haven't I? Waking up, eating breakfast, driving to work, coming home from work, right? We can miss it pretty easily, can't we? Even in those things that we do every day and we don't think a second thought about those things, even in those mundane, everyday things, God is still just like pouring out and crying out his glory, on the earth. And so if you are a follower of Jesus, if you're a believer in him, the way you apply this is simply to worship him, right? To recognize this grand symphony that he's given us of his glory and glorify God for it. Whether you're a nature lover or not, all of us can do this and look up to the heavens and just say, God, you, you must be amazing, right? Like look at the sky on the way out of, from church this morning. Just look up. <laughs> Just think about the God who created it, separated 
the heavens from the earth, separated the waters from the land, spoke us into existence, spoke all creation into existence. Glorify God for his creation. And if you're not a believer, this is where we go back to that opening illustration, like God's creation is kind of your speed limit sign, right? God has posted himself everywhere. So when the question is asked, did you see it? No is not going to be an accepted answer. You either willfully chose to suppress the truth, is what Romans said. You just ignored it. When that officer pulled me over, I wanted to suppress the truth. I wanted to pretend like I didn't know I was speeding or I didn't know what the speed limit was, but I knew the truth had been made clear. So if you're not a believer, let me encourage you to worship this God who has showed us his glory in the heavens and the skies above and the earth that he created. And that brings us actually to a very interesting question It's a question that we talked about in our uh, Friday morning men's Bible study uh, back in the spring. Here's another plug to join us on Friday mornings if you want to. But the question has to do with general and special revelation. General and special. We're going to take a little, to belabor our music uh, metaphor, we're going to take a little interlude here and talk about the difference between general and special revelation. And we'll define those terms in a second. But the question is... If God's creation is so glorious and so amazing that it reveals God in such a way that none of us have an excuse to not know him, does that mean that somebody can come to a saving knowledge of God only with creation and nothing else? In other words, can somebody who's never heard the name of Jesus, who's never had a Bible, but they, you know, they're out in creation and they see, wow, There must be a God who created all of this. Can that person come to enough knowledge of God to be saved? It's a a hard question. If you've never thought about it before, it's a really uh, difficult question to answer. Theologians have debated it for hundreds of years. In fact, uh, there's a very... um, nerdy thing that I find funny in German theology. Which is, so uh, these two theologians a long time ago uh, got into an argument about this. So one, one theologian's name was Bruner, and he wrote a, a book called Natural Theology, arguing that you can, in fact, come to sal- knowledge of God, salvation just in nature. And then Karl Barth wrote a response, and the response was just titled Nine, which is like the German word for no. It was just very, that was the only thing it was called, Nine. It was in response to this, no. And his his saying is, no, you cannot come to saving knowledge of God just in creation. And uh, we don't have time to get into all of the, the details, but we would agree with the nine guy, okay? So we would say, no, creation reveals a lot about God, but it's not enough to come to saving knowledge of Jesus. If it was, we wouldn't have to worry about doing things like sending out Rhema or others to be missionaries, right, or supporting missionaries who are going to share the gospel in places where Christ has never been named. If you could come to know Jesus in nature, we wouldn't have to go and share the good news. The truth is that it's not enough. 
So if you're taking notes, this is a really good and important concept to grasp, that God has revealed himself in two ways to us. The first is general revelation, general revelation, which has come to us in creation, right? God has revealed himself in the things that he's created generally to all people. General revelation can show us that God exists, right? You can know somebody, even if they don't know Jesus, can know that God exists, that God is the creator. General revelation can even show us that we should obey this God. And it can even get us so far as to understand that we have somehow sinned against him when we look at the ways that, um, that creation has been turned. But it can't get us to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. For that, we need God's special revelation special revelation, which has come to us in the Word, a.k.a. the Bible, which is a book that ultimately testifies to us about one man, Jesus Christ. So when I think about it, there's kind of a way that I think about this. So when uh, back in the house in the woods, our next-door neighbor was an eye doctor, and uh, he was kind of notorious for just having, uh, I hope he doesn't ever somehow come across a sermon, but just like the driest personality possible. So, and if you're an eye doctor, you're kind of, you know, you're doing the same thing every day anyway, but you just go in there and sit and they'd put the machine on you and say, he'd say, is it true that you can see better in lens one or lens two? That's like a, that's an exact impersonation of our next door neighbor. And then, okay, lens one or lens two, lens one. And then maybe he'd change it up, A or B, right? And so anyways, there's that moment, if you're the eye doctor, there's a moment when it's fuzzy and then all of a sudden he goes from one to two and boom, it snaps and it's clear, right? If you have need glasses or contacts like me, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's fuzzy, it's fuzzy, it's fuzzy, and boom, it's clear. God's special revelation is exactly like that to us in that we can kind of see in this fuzzy way just through creation like there's a God and we've done him wrong, but we don't know how to fix it. We don't know what to do about it until God gave us his word. And his word brings all of that into clarity. So if you don't remember these terms like natural theology or general and special revelation, that's not what's important. What's important is you remember that God has given us his word so that he can communicate exactly who he is. God is not hiding from us. Owen's favorite game to play right now is camouflage, hide, and seek because he's obsessed with animals and how they camouflage, which just means he'll pretend to be camouflaged and go stand up against a wall, and then you have to pretend that you can't see him because he's blended in so perfectly with whatever he's standing up next to. God is not trying to camouflage himself from us. He has made himself clear. In creation, we see the heavens declaring he is a glorious God, and in his word, we see very clear that he has uh, specific things he wants from us. Specific things he wants from us. And that's the second movement. So movement number one, David is praising God for his glory and creation. And then we abruptly shift into this movement number two, which shows us the beauty of God in his word. So look with me at verse 7. We're just going to walk through slowly each one of these things. It kind of, there's this parallelism that's kind of like a drumbeat here in this passage. So we're just going to walk slowly through each one. It says, the law or the instruction of the Lord, the law or instruction of the Lord is perfect, 
reviving the soul. It's perfect. The instruction that God gives us in his word is absolutely perfect. It doesn't need changed, doesn't need updated, doesn't need apologized for. God's instruction is perfect for every human being. Not only is it perfect, but it revives the soul. It brings to life the soul. The expression here kind of gives us the idea of like strength that you get from eating. That's what he's saying. God's instruction gives us the same soul strength that our body gets from eating food. It's just as important for us to ingest the instruction of the Lord as it is for us to eat. We need to feed on God's word. Jesus talks about that. He's tempted in the wilderness. We need God's word. Moving on, the testimony of the Lord is sure or trustworthy. Making wise the simple. Making wise the simple. It doesn't mean simple like simple-minded. It means simple like uninstructed. People who haven't been taught yet. God's word is what teaches us. You can trust that God's word will give you wisdom and teach you what is right. So we should trust it. The same way you want your kids to trust you when you tell them something's right. That's the same approach we should have toward God's word. It is sure, it is trustworthy, and it's what teaches us how to become wise. Verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. I love that. God's word gives us life, it makes us wise, and it gives joy to your heart. Do you find joy in God's word? Or do you see God's Word as a book that just kind of wants to kill your fun. Right? Do you find joy in it? His precepts, His teachings are right, and when you follow them, they bring joy to your heart. He goes on, The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Enlightening the eyes. His Word brings joy to your heart and light to your eyes. When do you most need light? Church, when you're in the dark. I would argue that probably not a single one of this, us this morning, except for JR, has thought about the lights in this room, right? Because they're on, right? We don't think about it. We've all taken them for granted. But what if the lights all of a sudden went out? What would you think about? Light. How badly you need it. You wouldn't be able to think about anything else except how can I get some light in here, right? Church, do we think that way? As we navigate the world, a world that is full of darkness, as you go throughout your life, do you think about that? You need the word of God to be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. And without God's word, you are just as much in spiritual darkness as we would be in physical, complete, and total darkness in here if there were no lights. We need God's word. To illuminate in front of us. His word is a lamp to your feet and a light unto your path. And I think too many Christians, myself included, can just easily slip into a pattern of not realizing how desperately we need God's word to illuminate the path ahead. I'm sorry, this doesn't get any less convicting. God's word is your food, it's your wisdom, it's your joy, and it's your light. And then he goes on. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. 
The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. This is crazy, church, when we think about it. (laughs) He's talking about gold. Much fine gold represents securities. If you have a lot of fine gold, you don't have to worry about anything. Your finances are totally taken care of. And the drippings of the honeycomb represent like the pleasures of this world. So what he's saying is God's rules are worth more to me than complete financial security and all the pleasures I could ever dream of. That's crazy. (laughs) You think about it. Let's be honest. Let's say you uh, found an old lamp in your attic and all of a sudden the genie from Aladdin came out, right? And he says, all right, I got to... Kind of two paths for you to take. You can choose one of the two. Option one, financial security the rest of your life. Not only security, but just a life filled with every pleasure you could ever want. You'll never have to worry about anything. Option two, God's rules. Which one are you going to take? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I want you to ask yourself honestly, like, how much do I value the word of God? Like, am I able to say, like, if I can have all the pleasures and security that the world has to offer, but I don't know how God wants me to live, then I just can throw that away because that means nothing to me compared to God's statutes and standards and what he's given me in his word to teach me how to live. That's hard. That's hard to get there. What David says is your rules are worth more to me and much fine gold, and the drippings of the honeycomb. It's far greater than any security or pleasure the world has to offer. Why? Verse 11, Moreover, by by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. There is great reward. So in keeping the commandments of God, there is an even greater reward than anything that the world can give you. The heavens declare the glory of God. His creation shows us that there is a great and powerful God who loves us and cares for us and calls us to obey him. And his word teaches us then how to obey him and who he is. And if that's where this psalm ended, it would be just a great psalm. But it doesn't end there. There's one more uh, movement that we need to talk about. Because David, at the end here, has a moment of self-reflection, like where all of the reality of all this just kind of comes crashing on him. A couple months ago, I preached on Isaiah 6. You might remember that passage where Isaiah sees God in the throne room in all of his majesty and all of his glory. And what's his response? Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. When he saw God for who he is... The reality of his sinfulness just, got, just came crashing down on him. The same exact thing happens to David here in Psalm 19. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim his handiwork. And the, his word, he's given us his word, which tells us the exact perfect way to live. And then he says, oh boy. Oh no. I messed up a lot. You can feel that what he says. And so this, our symphony kind of closes here with this, we'll call it the grand finale of what our response is to be to this great and glorious God who calls us to obey. Verse 12. Who perceives his unintentional sins? 
who even knows how much he sins without even like realizing it, he says. He says, cleanse me from my hidden faults. Moreover, keep your servant from willful sins. Do not let them rule me. Then I will be blameless and cleansed from blatant rebellion. So David here, he's breaking up his sin into two categories. Unintentional sin and willful sin. He starts with unintentional sin. And you can hear the frustration in the way that he says, who perceives his unintentional sins? Meaning, who even knows the true depth of his sinfulness? And church, there's so many things that we do that we don't even like, realize how sinful they are. Maybe we know, yeah, maybe I shouldn't have done that thing. But you don't realize like, though, the depth of what our sin really means compared to a holy God. And so the only thing we can do as we start to, that, as that sinfulness becomes clear is say, God, forgive me and cleanse me and declare me righteous. And he goes on to talk about the next category, which is willful sin. This is what we talked about last week. Remember when Eve, we talked about Eve taking the apple, she saw, or the, the fruit, she saw it was good, and she took of it, and she ate it. She knew what she was doing. She knew what God had told her to do, but she thought she knew better than God. It's willful sin. That's the category we're talking about. When we know what God's calling us to do, but we just really want to do it our way instead. And so we take the fruit, and we eat. And it might taste good for a time, but it always leads to death. And so he says, don't let these willful sins rule over me, God. Give me the power to have victory over these sins. That's what David says. He wrote these things long before Jesus came. And so here we are now. We're on the other side of the cross. We have a better understanding of the way that we are made righteous, the way that we're given power to have victory over these sins. We understand it now better than David did when he wrote it. First, we know the only way that we can be declared forgiven and innocent of all sin, unintentional and intentional, is just by the blood of Jesus Christ. When David says, then I will be blameless, we understand that we can be blameless. It's like the song we sang at the beginning this morning. Not by works we've done, but because we're in Jesus Christ. And when you are in Jesus Christ, that means now you have the Holy Spirit, which gives you the power to have victory over these presumptuous, willful sins. You don't have to feel stuck, church. And I know it can be a battle sometimes. But you have the Spirit. And so we pray, God, through your Spirit, give me victory over this sin. Help me to see this sin for the lie that it is. Help me to believe what your Word says about it, God. And like verse 14, we can pray, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. God, it's only because of Jesus that you can make my words and my heart acceptable to you. When we see the glory of God in creation, we realize he is so powerful. We can't even get our minds around how powerful he is. When we see his glory in creation, and then we see the way that he calls us to live in his word, and how far we fall short 
We say, woe is me. But thanks be to God, he doesn't leave us there because he gave us his son to forgive us of all those sins through his blood poured out on the cross. And he's given you the spirit now to have victory. So God has indeed revealed himself to us. Praise God that we don't have a God who hides, right? Like we didn't just kind of take that for granted as people who have grown up and seen the world our whole lives. And we probably, most of you, been had God's word nearby you your whole life, right? Like we can so easily take that for granted. God doesn't have to communicate as clearly as he does, but he does. So we have a God who communicates who he is. He's shown us his glory in creation. He's shown us how he wants us to live in his word. And he's shown us his power to transform us from death to life through the gospel of his son, Jesus. Praise the Lord for that. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who communicates. You're a just God. You're a righteous God. And you communicate those things to us. You are a wrathful God against sin. You hate it. And you communicate that to us, God. And Lord, if you only communicated your wrath and your justice to us, that would um, certainly be well within your right to do that. But you've given us grace. And we praise you, God. We thank you for the grace that we've been given in Christ Jesus, Lord. And so we pray now as a church following Jesus, a church being transformed, being made holy, being changed more into the image of Jesus, God, we just pray that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart would be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Holy, holy, holy. So Lord God Almighty, we praise you pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.